Hello, you are listening to the Bethel Atlanta Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com. Thank you, Jen. Jen's becoming, it's 11-11 right now. That's the time I see often. It's a good time. That's a good time. Jen's uh, introductions are so good, you have to kind of live up to them. So they're prophesying you up. That's the purpose of prophecy. Isn't it great to worship together with hungry people who love to worship? And you guys are just amazing. And uh, we're, the sky's the limit when a community of believers comes in and starts believing that they carry worship, that they're worship leaders, that they change the atmosphere when they worship. They come full, and on the first note, they're ready to give praise to the Lord. We're giving him our hallelujah. Hallelujahs, we're giving it to his. Uh, the, that word, I, I didn't know what that word meant till recently. Hallel means is to praise. It's like a command. Go praise. You praise. Hallel, go praise. And Yah is a, obviously a word for God. Go praise God. You praise God. Hallelujah. We're giving him our hallelujah. And we're encouraging each other. Like today, we're just bouncing off each other. Hallelujah. You're like, hallelujah. You give him a praise. In that environment, he can come and do anything. In that environment, your friends get saved, healed, delivered. In that environment is the shalom of God. That's another word I didn't know. We, we carry these words around and we, we say them all the time. We don't all know what they mean. These rich words, shalom. I got saved in a little little theater. It's like a Shakespearean theater next next to Palmer High School in Colorado Springs, Colorado, 1974. And I, I I just sovereignly would just start going on Sunday nights. No one invited me. It just said, the sign just said, shalom. I was totally unchurched. I have no idea what shalom is. I'm just showing up, bunch of hippies, tail end of the Jesus movement, about 30, 40 hippies. And I'd walk out feeling the presence of God. There's a shalom in my DNA. I got saved in a house that said shalom. It's wholeness. It's wellness. It's prosperity. It's healing. It's goodness. It's what God wants for all of us. Shalom. So we bless you with the shalom of God. And I look back over these 45 years since that time and I just uh, pinch myself because he's building shalom in my life. And he's building it in your life too. The shalom of God. He's so good. So uh, occasionally I just um, want to open up a chapter of the Bible and just talk about it and read it like I read it at home and just invite you into my quiet time. And my purpose is that we just open the word together and we go line by line and we let it inspire us, change us, wash us. And, and so that's what we're going to do today, okay? And the chapter is possibly the most famous chapter, the most quoted chapter in the New Testament 
of an Old Testament chapter. It, if you're going to go on an island and God said you can take one chapter out of the Old Testament, I'm taking this chapter. If he says you can only take three books, I'm taking this book along with two others. In fact, this book in the Old Testament is actually the Bible within a Bible. It's a capsule of the entire Bible inside this book. In fact, this book has 66 chapters in it. The Bible has 66 books. The first 39 chapters of this book are about judgment and captivity. Our Bible, the first 39 books, we call the Old Testament, the covenant, the Hebrew Bible. It's about our sinfulness. It's about our need for God. This book in the 40th chapter, it starts calling about one crying, a voice crying in the wilderness. When we turn the page of our Bible to the New Testament, there's a figure called John the Baptist, a voice crying in the wilderness, calling for one better than him. This book in chapter 40 changes from judgment and captivity to grace and salvation. And in 40, it's calling about a voice in the wilderness. The last chapter of this book in the Old Testament talks about, chapter 66, it talks about the, um, the time when there's a new heaven and a new earth. And as you know, the end of Revelation talks about a new heaven and a new earth. This is a Bible within a Bible. And spot right halfway in the last 27 chapters of this book that correspond to the 27 books of the New Testament, right in the middle, Isaiah 53. Grace, grace, grace. And so we're going to jump in to one of the more memorable chapters in the Bible. Martin Luther said every believer should memorize Isaiah 53 by heart. Anybody memorize it? Any Martin Luther advocates here? So I'm, I'm, I don't know it yet, but that maybe someone will. And we're going to start, uh, really it should begin in Isaiah 52, verse 13. And if we, we may pull some of that up. It says, look, my servant. And that servant, that word is servant or slave will prosper and succeed. Theologians tell us there's 20 major religions in the world, 300 sects of those religions, thousands of different philosophies. But our God came as a suffering servant. No other faith has that distinctive. He came humble, a servant. And he said he'll succeed. He'll be highly honored. He'll be raised up and greatly exalted. After the resurrection, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Today, he's highly honored, raised up and exalted. He came as a lowly servant. He is now raised up 
and greatly exalted. And just as many were appalled at the sight of him, for so many was his appearance like an object of horror. He no longer looked like a man. Many of us have uh, watched The Passion. How many? How many, like me, don't want to watch it again? You know, we watched it once. And I, I want to keep watching it. I just, it's hard to watch. Because our, we love the Lord Jesus and to see the passion, to see him marred, to see him broken, to see him torn, to see him whipped, to see him spit upon, to see him pierced. It grieves us. My, you know, my daughter can't even watch it. He was, it was probably worse than the movie. Because the word of God says he was an object of horror and he no longer looked like a man. But he'll startle many nations. And that word startle is also sprinkle. As a, as a high priest sprinkling the blood. As they sprinkled the blood for the forgiveness of sins in the old covenant. Our high priest Jesus is sprinkling blood, making it available for nations to come unto him. He started low. He's been exalted, and he's available as a high priest. And kings will be shocked and speechless before him. Our cultures, everybody's got an opinion. Everybody has a word. Everybody has a website. Everybody has a social media. Everybody's opinion matters. But there'll be a day where kings will be shocked and speechless before him. For they will now see a sight unheard of. And things never considered before will fill their thoughts. In 53 verse 1 it says, Who has truly believed our revelation? For whom will Yahweh reveal his mighty arm or his power? To whom will Yahweh our God reveal his power? And as I was sitting here, I was remembering Michael Maiden, who was here a few weeks ago. He, I heard him prophesy to so many of you. So beautiful. When the God of heaven touches something in your heart and through another person lets you know he sees something in your heart. It's a beautiful thing. He prophesied over me is, is like he said, I, I see all these different roads, these different paths, these different forks in the road, this dis- different pathway. And he was like, it's amazing that you got here where you are. Anybody feel that way? Yeah. Think about some of the forks in the road of your life. Think about some of the forks of the road in your life. I, I, you can ima- I, I can just think of a couple. I, when I was in eighth grade, my dad was stationed in Vietnam. My stepmom lived in East Point, and my mom lived in Bath, England. And my mom wanted me to come live with her that year. There was a fork in the road. I ended up staying in East Point and going to Woodward and boarding. And I met my wife in eighth grade at Woodward Academy. 
that year. There was a fork in the road. Like, I take a left fork, I don't meet Lindy. I take a left fork and live in England that year, and I'm probably not here. You saw all these forks. And your life is the same. So who's believed our revelation? To whom will Yahweh reveal his power and his right arm? And I just sat grateful, like, God, there are so many forks in the road that could have gone to so many other places than knowing you or even being here this morning with you, worshiping like we did together. There were so many forks in the road. To whom will Yahweh reveal his mighty arm? And I say, you're in a position today for Yahweh to reveal his mighty arm. And that is worthy of being grateful. And thank you, Lord God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You're here. And it says he sprouted, up, he sprouted up like a tender plant before the Lord, like a root in a parched soil. He came up like a, you've seen like a, just a green shoot, a green root in a dry spot. It's not meant, it doesn't have a good chance of living. He came up in a dry place. That could be the sinfulness of humanity, it could be the state of Israel, but it was a dry parched place and a root came up. He's the root of David. He comes as a root. And he possessed no distinguishing beauty or outward splendor to catch our attention. Nothing special in his appearance to make us desire him. There aren't many scriptures about what Jesus looked like. Have you noticed that? This is one of the only ones I know of. It says there's nothing in his appearance that would make us be drawn to him. He wasn't tall like Michael Edwards. He wasn't round like, stop there. He didn't have an English nose. He didn't have some distinguishing characteristic. He wasn't a runway model beautiful. God chose to send him in a way that he did not cause you to turn his head when he walked into the room by his appearance. If you were spiritually discerning, your head might have turned. Interesting. I get a little tweaked by the effeminate, white, light-skinned, Nordic Jesus. <laughs> Sunken chest, blue eyes, long blonde hair, Nordic Jesus. He was a Jew. <laughs> right? Some, not as offended, but the three-foot Afro Jesus, you know, like... He was an African. He was a, he was a Jew from the Middle East. Amen? Amen? We were made in his image. We don't have permission to make him in ours. So we don't. So, and I think, I think, you know, I think he was a, you know, I, I, this is my opinion. I can't prove it. I just think he was a man's man. He was a carpenter. 
All the carpenters I know drive pickup trucks. <laughs> he was here today, he'd have a F-150 just like everybody else. And he, you know, he worked with his hands, so he had man hands. One of my nephews, I shook his hand the other week or two ago, he said, man, your hands are soft. You have soft hands, Uncle Steve. Thank you very much. When I used to play ball, I'd have, you know, I'd have a callus right here from playing baseball and a callus here from hitting bad golf shots. And I used to cut my own grass. I'd have calluses from working in the yard and getting my hands dirty. Now I've got professional hands. I mean, Jesus swung a hammer. I think he had man hands. He's out in the sun. He's working with his hands. He probably had some muscles. It's just my opinion. But the word says there's nothing about his appearance that would draw us to him. In verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of deep sorrows who was no stranger to suffering and grief. He was no stranger to suffering and grief. He was no stranger to rejection. He was no suffering to people not loving him. And uh, this week, people are starting to run for president. I think Elizabeth Warren announced the candidacy, and so... What they typically do is they go to their hometown, they got their family and their friends, all their closest people, and they announce their presidency. And it's warm and it's uplifting and it's all good and they're starting off with a positive thing, hopefully. Jesus had his inaugural hometown visit in Luke 4. He got to announce his ministry to his hometown. And in Luke 4, he didn't get received quite the same way. In fact, he opened the scroll in Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And he closed the book and all of the townspeople were like, wow, that was anointed. That was incredible language. Isn't he Joseph's son? And they began to God, the Lord could just sense their not receiving him. And he said, a prophet's not even known in his own hometown. And then he, then he was very interesting. He said, you know, we've sent other prophets to you guys. Elijah got sent. There were tons of widows in Israel. The land was all dry. But we ended up having to send Elijah to a Gentile nation, not to Israel. And there were lots of lepers when Elisha came. But we didn't send Elisha to go heal a leper in Israel. We had to send him to nearby Syria. Jesus was poking him in the eye. The God of truth was 
okay with rejection. We get rejection, I get defensive, or we have thin skin, or we're getting self-pity. We come out swinging. This guy was whole. It didn't affect him. The God of truth on a mission, and he told it like it was, straight and true. We can all learn that a little bit better in the South. Straight and true. And he didn't sin doing it. He poked them in the eye. He was blunt. He was as blunt as Trump. <laughs> We've had a little Obama, a little Trump today, so we're getting equal opportunity. But read the words of Jesus. He's more blunt and more straight, sometimes more harsh than anyone we've ever been around. And God said he didn't sin. He was accompanied by rejection and he stayed whole. He took all that rejection and he stayed whole and he stayed true. He stayed on point. He stayed on mission. The greatest leader. Unbelievable. He stayed whole. And we hid our faces from him in disgust. We considered him a nobody, not worthy of respect. And I often wonder, like, if we were there, if I was there, would I have been one in the Luke 4 crowd in the congregation that said, I don't like that guy? Or would our spirits have resounded? And would we have been close enough to God that we would have seen the God in him? Or would we have rejected him in his harshness, in his truth? In verse 4, he was one who carried our sicknesses and endured the torment of our sufferings. And we viewed him as one who was being punished. That word punished is also stricken. That stricken word, when you, when you dive another deeper level, that stricken is the word they used. He was stricken with leprosy. And the rabbis thought that he was, would, the Messiah would come as not a leper, but one looked like he was stricken with leprosy. He was stricken with that disease. He carried and bore our sickness. He didn't die on a cross just for our salvation. He bore our sickness and he bore our disease. He's made provision. He wants us to live shalom, well and whole. We're in a process of learning, but he's how to accommodate that, how to do that. We don't win every battle. But we live under the absolute knowledge that he bore our sickness. And it's his will all the time to, that we be whole. Whole in every way. It's his desire that we be whole in every way. You're not broken. 
He's not a baby in a manger anymore. He's not a broken man on a cross. He's alive. He's alive. He is our hallelujah. And he carried our sicknesses. And he endured the torment of our sufferings. For something he himself had done. And as one who was struck down by God and brought low. We looked at him like he was punished by God or struck down. He wasn't. It pleased the Lord, it said. It pleased the Lord to allow this to happen. Why? So many sons and daughters could come in. Was it hard? Was the whole process crazy and hard? Yeah. It pleased the Lord to let him be stricken. And we, we laid the, the sins of the world were laid upon him. And it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like Johnny Jesus going to school with his backpack and we got to just wrap up our little sin and put it gift wrapped and slide it into his backpack and he gets to go to school and lose his backpack. That's not what happened. His sin became integrated into him. His sin wasn't just laid on him, it became him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he actually became sin. He was, in a sense, molested with our sin. Pure, holy God without sin, and he became our sin. Make it personal. Think about your last sin. It was on him. It was in him. It became him. Past sins, present sins, future sins laid on the Savior of the world. Make it personal. Think of your worst moment. In him, he became your sin. Violated by your sin and mine. In the old Hebrew, they would take the goat, they'd take the animal, they'd take the bull, and it, it, in the culture, it became sin, and they, they killed it. The, the blood was drawn. They burned it. Often, the sins were being burned. It was being consumed because it was thought of that that animal had become the sin of the nation and it was to be destroyed and burned. Jesus became our lamb. Our sin. He became it. It was laid upon him. And and so that shame that you might still carry over your worst moment it became him. And it was destroyed by him on the cross. It says he remembers it no more. As far as the east is from the west. And if you want to appropriate what God was trying to do on the cross, what God is trying to teach us in Isaiah 53, there should be no more shame. He wore it. He bore it. He took it. Believers 
should be the most free. If we really believe what he did, we'll be free. Your worst moment, your last moment, he wants us free. The price Jesus paid, the perfect Lamb of God, God himself crawling on a tree. He said, I paid the price. If you really believe it, you'll be free. If you'll be really believe it, you'll let go. If you'll really believe it, it's gone. And you show your gratitude by actually living that way. And I would tell you, you show your agreement and your belief and your acknowledgement by actually living free. By living free. Amen? Amen. That's worth a clap. We show that we actually believe it. And if we actually live that way, do you think we're more attractive showing Christ in us the hope of glory or not? We're actually more attractive. I want to read something to you that really struck me. This is a, I've shared with you all that this, my utmost for his highest, Oswald Chambers, is, speaks to me often. In Isaiah 53.3, he says, A man of sorrows, and he was acquainted with our grief. And Oswald says, We're not acquainted with grief in the way in which our Lord was acquainted with it. We endure it. We get through it. We do not become intimate with it. At the beginning of our life, we don't reconcile ourselves to the fact of sin. We take a rational view of life. We say that man can, by controlling his instincts by educating himself, can produce a life which slowly evolves into a life of God. Does that make sense? We're not black and white with this thing. We're like, uh, I can control this sin. I can train myself. I can watch my thoughts and my mouth. I can get educated, and I'll evolve into being a more godly man or woman. A lot of us thought that way. But as we go on, we find the presence of something which we have not taken into consideration, sin. And it upsets all our calculations. Sin has made the basis of things wild and not rational. We have to recognize that sin is a fact, not a defect. Sin is red-handed mutiny against God. Sin is red-handed mutiny against God. And either God or sin must die in my life. Something's growing or something's dying. God or sin. Either God or sin needs to die in my life. The New Testament brings us right down to this one issue. If sin rules in me, God's life in me will be killed. If God rules in me, sin in me will be killed. There is no possible ultimate but that. The climax of sin is that it crucified Jesus. There's an author who's writing these books, Killing Jesus, Killing Lincoln. Sin killed Jesus. And then Jesus got on a cross, rose from the dead, and he killed sin. He killed it. And he said, if you believe in me, it doesn't have power over you. 
If we're true believers, sin does not have power over it. When we talk about chains being broken, that's what we're talking about. The chain that pulls you into sin has been broken. Come to Christ, you are no longer a professional sinner, you're a rank amateur. And you're not that good at it. And it's no fun anymore. He's broken it. Now, I'm not making light that you say a little prayer, you give your heart, and everything just goes away. When I got saved at 17, some things just went away. My foul mouth went away. I quit drinking, doing experiment with pot, trying to think about girls in the wrong way. But stuff, some stuff didn't change overnight. That's why we need each other. Jesus has Jesus' anointing is a one-step program. Bam, you're done. But if I need a three-step program or a 12-step program, it doesn't matter how many steps, let's just get it done. Amen. Just get it done. One step's better, but whatever. If your pastor's not anointed enough and you need a 12-step program, get a 12-step program. I'm not assuming you need a 12-step program. Just, just saying. Something's dying in you. Your will your desires, your way, and as that is dying, Christ is living. Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's made a way. He won ultimate victory on the cross. He won it. It's not an evolutionary victory. It's a complete, total victory. You're walking into it's up to you. Me Appropriating it is up to me. So he was, he was pierced, but it was our verse, in verse 5, but it was because of our rebellious deeds that he was pierced. I was thinking about that. I'm old enough to know of a lot of people who have passed away. Read a lot of stories, known a lot of people. I don't know anybody but Jesus that was pierced in his side. He was pierced for our transgressions. Because of our sins, he was crushed. On the cross, we said, Father, why have you forsaken me? It was because he became sin. And he was separated from the Father in that moment. And he felt that distance for the first time in all of eternity. Where he, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit weren't in perfect communion. And he felt the weight of that, the crushing of sin. He came to beat sin. He came with a mission. He came to beat sin so that you and I could be restored as sons and daughters of the King. He came that we'd be restored to a life of shalom. He came that we could reign in our life. Be true sons and daughters. Any mom or dad that loves their kids, they want the best for their kids. They want the very best. 
they want their kids to go beyond them. They want their kids to have a better life than them. They'll pay a price for it. They'll sacrifice. He wants the best for us. We'll close here in a few minutes. In verse 7, these next few verses are amazing. He was oppressed and harshly treated, still humbly submitted, refusing to defend himself. He was brought or led like a gentle lamb. That was part of the culture. They, the priests would lead the lamb to be slaughtered. It was important to God in his minute details that Jesus was led like a lamb. These little things. That if, you're, if you're interested in this chapter, there's a, a Jewish rabbi, I believe his name's Jonathan Kahn. You can YouTube two, two sermons where he goes deeply into the next level of the Hebrew words and how they're tied to Leviticus. It's fascinating. He was led like a gentle lamb to be slaughtered, like silent sheep before his shears. He didn't even open his mouth. Have you, have you ever met anyone who was accused who didn't open his mouth? It's another distinctive. We all lawyer up, right? We all have a story. But the, the one person who was perfect didn't lawyer up. He was quiet. He was silent. He didn't open his mouth. And by coercion and with a perversion of justice, he was taken away. He was innocent. It was a perversion of justice. Our culture is kind of railing. Our, our justice mountain is under attack right now in our nation. We're, we're concerned that those with the lowest rights or the lowest appeal are being not treated fairly. We see things on TV where 40 FBI show up to get a, to arrest a man in his bathrobe who's 70 years old. Like, what's going on here? By coercion with a perversion of justice, he was taken away. And who could have imagined his future? He was cut down in the prime of his life. Do you catch the distinctives that could only, that seemed like Isaiah was at the foot of the cross, though it was written 700 years earlier? 700 years earlier he wrote, but it sounds like he's at the foot of the cross. It's amazing. He came and he was quiet. He was led like a lamb. There was a perversion of justice. He was 33 years old. He was in the prime of his life. For the rebellion of his people, he was struck down in their place. He was struck down in my place. He was struck down in your place. They gave him a grave among criminals. How did Isaiah know this? Remember, there was a thief on either side of him on the cross. 
but he ended up instead in a rich man's tomb. Think about it. Who do you know that died with criminals and ends up in the nicest tomb in town? It's not logical. God adds the details. Isaiah's at the bottom of the cross, a seer prophet, seeing it clearly. And although all this had been done, no violence, or did he speak deceitfully? Our Christ, our Jesus. It, and even though it pleased Yahweh to crush him with grief, he will be restored to favor. He's restored to favor in the resurrection. He's restored to favor in that he conquered sin and death. He's restored to sin to favor in that he sits at the right hand of the Father. And he's invited you in. He's invited me in. Come on. Sit with me. Get on my lap. Call me Papa God. Daddy. Sit with me. Can you live? Do you have faith to live from heavenly places? Do you have faith to believe what I did for you and count everything you've ever done as washed and gone? Who will be the sons of God? Those that live by the Spirit. I was thinking about it driving in today. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They were all in in Isaiah 53. They were all in on the cross. They're all in in their effort to reclaim you into this kingdom, into this life. They're all in. What else can they do? What other hardship could they do? How could he have been better and how could he have been more maligned? They're all in. Their chips are in. And sometimes, honestly, I look at my life as a little lukewarm. And I'm like, they're all in. Do I have an excuse not to be? They're all in. Why aren't we? They're all in. They're all in because they love you that much. Have you ever just loved somebody and you're not getting back the, the vibe back? You ever feel like you're doing all you can do and it's just ain't, it's not coming back? You ever love with some girl and it just ain't happening? I dated Lindy for like two years and uh, as I said, I met her when I was in eighth grade. I was five foot two little kid, Dennis the Menace. She was a 10th grade girl, and a lot of 10th grade girls grow up fast. She was a young woman. I was five foot two. Dennis the Menace. I had a crush on the older girl. I come back four or five years later, and I'm thinking, I'm a man now. She's going to love me. 
she's looking through a lens of five foot two little brother. So I pursued her for two or three years before wisdom showed up and the light bulb went off. <laughs> Until he walked into the room, everything changed. No. <laughs> Stop there. I, I just, but I mean, we are in the Guinness Book of World Records, 25 dates without a kiss. So, persevering. But, but I was all in, <laughs> and she wasn't. She wasn't even close to being all in. She was, still had her eyes on a bunch of other yahoos in town. <laughs> bunch of yahoos, that's what they were. <laughs> He's all in with us. And sometimes we're not all in with him. But we have, a, we have a beautiful ability and opportunity here as a community to just run after him, to, to go after him, to chase him, to go all in with him. I'm hearing stories and have continued to hear stories, but I hear stories of a young man, Ben, here who's graduate assistant at West Georgia baseball team and just leading his teammates to the Lord. He read, read Life's book, Reigning in Life, and it touched him. And, and John, you and Bree touched me, you know, he said like, why should, John's like, why should I wait for some superstar outreach director? Why don't I just do it on my own? And he and Bree buy some gift cards and go downtown and do their own little family outreach. And little Bree gets a word of knowledge and prays for a man, homeless man on the park bench and he gets healed. And Jesus shows up and the glory of God shows up and the, the kingdom of God, heaven invades earth a little bit on that park bench. And we have Students going with Joseph to Montgomery, inner city schools, and y'all taking your time to go there and your own money and people from Reading and young men who maybe haven't had the start in life or the chance some of us have had get to hear the good news of the gospel and raise their hand. It's happening everywhere. Little shoots, little green shoots in a dry and weary land. Little Christ-like, Christ in you, the hope of glory, showing up. He's all in. So, Lord, I just pray, if you'd stand with me.
Lord, I thank you that you've dropped nuggets in your word, like Isaiah 53, that make it easy to believe. You drop seer prophets to make it obvious. You made it where it doesn't require a lot of faith to realize you are our Messiah, our Savior, the Savior of the world. And I thank you for this scripture that reminds us again that you're all in, that you love us with an everlasting love, that you gave everything. And you opened the door and you dropped that veil from the top down and you made access for each and every one of us equal and open access to the Father, to the heart of the Father, to encounters with the Father, to the love of the Father, open access to everyone who would believe. And Lord, release a grace if there's anyone who doesn't believe in this room right now that the grace of an all-in God, of a God that loved them that much, how do they reject a God that loves them that much? He's all in. And the veil has been split from the top down. He said, come on in. Abba, Father, Daddy, your sins can be as white as snow. You can be forgiven. I will remember them no more. As far as the east is to the west, come. Ye who have ears to hear, let them come. And those of you who would bow your knee and say, I can't do it on my own. I need you, Lord. I believe you died for my sins. Romans 10.9 If you will confess your sins and believe that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The promise of the Father. You hear, you believe. It's as simple as that with your whole heart and your whole life. Would there be any that don't know the Lord? No better day. Today is the day of salvation. Is there? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if there's anyone. I hope, I hope everyone knows the Lord, but if you don't, it's a great day. Thank you for listening to the Sermon of the Week. To stay connected with Bethel Atlanta, visit www.bethelatlanta.com.